you're old enough to remember the king of late-night Johnny Carson, you may recall his skit, Karnak the Magnificent. He pretended he could hold up a letter and tell everybody what it said without even opening it. Well, Johnny, of course, was using that skit as a spoof on the whole issue of extrasensory perception, but seriously, there are a lot of people who've been doing studies on that issue of whether there are certain people who do have special psychic abilities. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus today is on the whole issue of ESP, extrasensory perception. Stats and Stories reporter Bethany Miller tells us ESP is one field of study where skepticism abounds. There are some scientific subjects where clinical studies give us confidence in their findings. We've talked in previous Stats and Stories episodes about forensic scientists making great progress studying DNA. We've also discussed scientists developing medicines for specific types of diseases or learning that certain workplace chemicals cause cancer. One area that is difficult to study is whether certain people have extrasensory perception, an ability that goes beyond their normal five senses. Miami University professor Joe Johnson is a cognitive psychologist. He says parapsychology is a difficult field because the burden of proof is higher given people's natural skepticism. People who are doing visual perception and trying to determine how people you know, perceive light or, or how they perceive features of a stimulus or, or different things in the visual world, you can have people report pretty faithfully what they're seeing, and those sorts of things are easier to investigate, I think. Um, something like parapsychology, I think it's a little more fuzzy. It's not as well defined exactly what the phenomena may be or how we would know if we're successful in, in discovering them. Rosemary Ward is the director of the Center for Enhancement of Learning and Teaching at Miami. She agrees with Joe Johnson that parapsychology is outside the norm. She says there are people who think it would be nice if some individuals had that ability to see the future. And since the vast majority of people have had some kind of sensory experience where they like felt like something was going to happen or knew something was going to happen, it feels a little bit believable. And so they hope that it's true, but um, there's not a lot of concrete evidence to show that those kind of powers exist. Ward says there are scientific methods for studying if someone has extrasensory powers, but the key is eliminating biases that could lead to the results you hope to find. For example, I had a friend who thought every time he walked down a street, the street lights would go off. And so every time it would happen, he'd look and he's like, look, that light just went off. We walked under it and went off. And that's a confirmation bias. Instead, you should look for all the times it, they don't go off and examine that. Rosemarie Ward says there are definitely are people who believe in ESP, and she points to the number of TV shows that deal with that topic. Joe Johnson says it's hard to say whether media representations are causing any damage to the field of parapsychology. I think it can dilute the message, and I think it, then it's harder, um, right, not just for the scientists, but especially for, for the average person to, 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 to separate, right, and, and to discriminate between, is this something that was, was done in a scientific way, which is a more credible source of information, or is it something that, that's a little bit softer or a little bit more for entertainment, if anything else? For example, Johnson says how people perceive the color red isn't as contentious as studies trying to show that someone can see the future. Joe Johnson says a true scientific study requires good design and good control to rule out biases. For Stats and Stories, I'm Bethany Miller. Joining me on Stats and Stories for our discussion are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell, and our special guest today, Jessica Utz, the professor and chair of the Department of Statistics at Cal Irvine. And she spent many, many years investigating data from parapsychology, which is the scientific study 
of possible psychic abilities. And Jessica, we welcome you to the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, for those who don't know, we'll start off with what we mean by extrasensory perception. Also, I'm just kind of interested along with that, how you got uh, interested in this whole uh, 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 area of study. Okay. Extrasensory perception, generally, first of all, it's a misnomer because we don't know that there's an extra sense, and probably is not. Um, But it basically refers to the ability to have access to information that doesn't come through our normal five known senses, however that might happen. How did you get interested in this? I actually was... I kind of had a lifelong interest in it anyway. I was an undergraduate math and psychology major, quite interested in all aspects of psychology. And then I had a fortuitous circumstance when I was on my first sabbatical at Stanford University. I ended up meeting some people who were doing this research for the federal government, research on ESP for the government, and they needed statistical help. And so I became their statistical consultant and um, eventually got more and more involved in the work they were doing. And... uh, Rest is history, as they say. <laughs> John Baylor. So, so how was the government using the, the, the what kind of studies were, were was the government doing with respect to these? The government actually had a scientific program and then a classified program where they were using people to psychically spy on our enemies, actually. Um, and so that was very interesting. I got involved in the scientific part of it, where they were trying to figure out Things like, is it real, first of all, obviously? Uh, And if so, how does it work? And can it be taught? And can our enemies be using it against us? Is there any way to block it if somebody else is trying to use it to get information from us? What is psychic spying? Because this Ah, was the government, and I know this was an actual government program for like 15 years, right? Yeah, our government for a long time. They had a group of people who they would uh, have basically try to use their own psychic abilities to gain information about various things that were of interest to the government. So it might be um, we have a satellite image of a facility in the Soviet Union. We want to know what's going on inside. Or uh, we have somebody who's been taken hostage. We want to know where he is. Those kinds of things. John Baylor. So when, when you looked at these, these, these types of studies, you want to then gather data to try to evaluate this, sort of formally evaluate and assess whether these abilities exist. Could you talk about kind of what would be a, a gold standard of the type of experiment that might be conducted to, to investigate this phenomena? Absolutely. So the kinds of things I talked about where we are trying to gain information about our enemies and so on. Those are not scientific experiments, obviously. Anecdotes are not scientific experiments. And the main reason that anecdotes can't count as scientific experiments uh, is that we don't have any way to assess what just happens by chance in a daily basis. Coincidences are quite common just by chance and so on. So there are two things you need to do a good scientific study. One is you need to close all the loopholes for how people might have access to information in other ways through cheating or, um, you know, texting or whatever, Uh, subtle cues even. Uh, Like you can't, if you're doing an experiment, you could never have somebody in the same room who knows the answer to the question you're trying to get a psychic to answer uh, because they could provide subtle clues. So the first thing is you need this kind of um, ruling out any kind of ordinary means of communication. And the second criterion for statistical evaluation is that you need to be able to assess what should happen by chance alone. Because if you can't do that, you can't, can't do a statistical assessment. It seems to me that this field is a little different than a lot of other scientific fields. You you look at forensic science and, and they're always looking for, you know, the, the best answers on fingerprints and DNA and things like this. But there's always that 
doubt that people, you know, some people are, as John kind of pointed out, are strong believers in this and others are really skeptical. So does that make it more difficult sometimes when you're trying to do uh, experiments with people? It makes it very difficult for the science to get a fair hearing because most people, frankly, are not interested in what the science has to say because they've already made up their mind. Almost everybody already has an opinion on whether or not this stuff is real. And the people who are convinced it's real are just as um, problematic as the people who are convinced that there's no way it can be real because neither side really wants to look at data. They think they already know the answer. It, it struck me that that is something that this this would be, a, and you just kind of confirmed that it's a place where people have very strong opinions one way or the other. Right. Richard. So in your studies, can you talk about, so what did you find? I mean, do people have psychic ability? Are you, were you able to show that from the research that you did? My bottom line is if we were to treat this area like we treat other areas of science, we would be totally convinced that the psychic abilities are real. There's so much evidence out there. Um, the statistical evidence, you know, we look at things that are called p-values. The p-values are so tiny here, uh, if, if it's only chance that if Suppose that there really is no such thing. The probability of getting the results that we've seen so far just by chance are astronomically small. Um, so there really is a lot of very strong statistical evidence. On the other hand, it's obviously not a strong effect, or we would all know it existed. So it's a weak effect, just like things like the effect of aspirin on preventing heart attacks is a weak effect. You don't see that in everyday life. You can't just see that by people walking around on the street. So it's a weak effect, but it's consistently statistically uh, sound. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we always talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And today we are talking about this whole field of parapsychology. I'm Bob Long, our regular panelist today, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest today, Jessica Utz, Professor and Chair of the Department of Statistics at Cal Irvine. And as we said, she's spent a number of years investigating uh, this whole uh, field. We also wanted to find out what people on the street know about our topic. So one of the things we asked them was, what exactly is extrasensory perception? I think it's when people can sense others' feelings or people sense things that aren't within the five normal senses, like to the extreme, sensing like a presence that you wouldn't see with the human eye. Maybe like if you were blindfolded and had like three different drinks, being able to, based on taste, determine what those drinks were. I just thought of it as reading the future or anything besides like the five senses. I'm serious. I think it's a lot of linked to spirituality and what you believe and if you believe in ghosts and you see something a shadow and honestly i have no idea what that means but i feel like it would have to do with like an extra sense so someone is um more perceptive than average and that their their like sensory threshold is lower than that of a normal person something that doesn't use like the five basic senses but it's still just like something in your head i don't know how to explain it but that's like as close as i can get john baylor will go to you for the next question you know, one of the things that in an earlier conversation we had, you had you mentioned a variety of other ways that this phenomenon is described and some of the other terms that are used. Could you could you go through some of that that list and, and help us see what what makes sense to you as when you describe it and how you characterize this phenomenon? Sure. So uh, a sort of neutral one was supposed to be just the Greek letter psi, P-S-I, that's used. Um, but one of the ones they used in the government work was anomalous cognition with the idea that there's something 
going on that we can't explain about cognition. Um, more recently, people have been using a term non-local consciousness to indicate that there's something going on here that has to do with our consciousness, but not something where you're just sort of locally getting the information. Richard, could you talk about, kind of walk us through what one of your experiments is like? Sure. So a very simple experiment would be um, somebody, uh, so first of all, let me start. Before the experiment is done, you have to prepare the what's called a target pool, a pool of possibilities for what you're going to have somebody try to guess. So let's say you have a collection of 200 photographs. That's what you're going to use as your target pool. And to make it more concrete, let's say you have 200 photographs taken from a magazine like National Geographic. So you have these 200 photographs. Uh, what the experiment, the way it proceeds is you randomly select one of the photographs, and that's going to be the so-called target. And the person who's going to try to use their abilities to do this is simply told there's a photograph. I'm going to show it to you later, and I want you to describe it now. So that's the experiment. So the person describes it however they can. They maybe draw pictures of what they think it might be. Uh, they talk and so on. At the end of all of that, you then take the actual photograph that was the target and three others also randomly selected from the pool or collected from the pool, not randomly selected. So um, you start out with a set of four photographs that are as different as possible. You randomly select one to be the target. Then when you're done with the experiment, you show the person the four possibilities and you ask them, which one of these do you think you were trying to describe? And so by chance, they should get it right one out of four times, because if the target's really randomly selected from the four choices, no matter what they say, the one that's selected is going to match best with probability one-fourth. So then you can do a statistical assessment of that. Okay. John Baylor. Well, there's, so you, this, this touched on the two areas that you had talked about earlier, like closing the loopholes of, of what information people might have, and also then having some sense of what you would expect to occur by chance alone. So it sounds like that that does it does describe well that experiment in terms of capturing it. You've you've also mentioned the, in in previous conversations the importance of prior belief in an analysis. So you know if someone is approaching a data analysis with a very strong skeptical view, they might be looking at data in a different way than someone who has a sympathetic or more open-minded view to this. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you use when you were involved in analyzing these data? Sure. Uh First of all, you know, there's a famous quote, and we're not quite sure where it originated, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So even if we use standard frequentist statistical methods, which are things like what we call p-values or confidence intervals, people who are strong deniers will require extraordinary evidence. Uh, and that actually would require a long time to collect when you have something that has a relatively small effect size. But more recently, people have been using what's called Bayesian analysis. A Bayesian analysis is a method of statistics that allows you to build in your prior beliefs. And so that's kind of cool because you can actually look at the data and combine it with your prior beliefs and then come out with what you're left with after you've combined those two things. Uh, and ideally, the data will move people's prior beliefs in one direction or the other. Um, I'm not sure that always happens because some people may start with a zero prior belief. <laughs> but uh, if they don't and if they're honest about it, then that's what should happen. Let me, let me follow up to, then just to clarify. So let's think about our skeptic. You mm -hmm. know, so you said, uh, you know, in, in the, the setup of the experiment that you described, you said, well, if they're guessing, just, just guessing the, the, the match, it'd be about a one in four chance of right. guessing the match. So what would the skeptic's prior belief, how would that be expressed with respect to, to that? Okay, well, first of all, let me differentiate between two types of people, um, a skeptic and what I'll call a denier. 
Okay, okay, a denier essentially has zero prior probability that this could be real. So let's ignore them for now. Okay, let's okay. just go with a true skeptic who has an open mind and has some possible, uh, you know, that will allow some possibility for this to be real. So for that person, they probably would start out with the idea that the probability of a match is truly one-fourth, like we said it was, but they, that's not the only value they'll consider. So they may consider a range of possible values around one-fourth, where it's centered on one-fourth, but they're open to it being something higher than that. Richard, you talked about uh, Bayesian statistics. Uh-huh. So are there statisticians who push back on this, incorporating prior belief systems in this kind of research? Yeah, so Bayesian statistics is kind of a tricky area of statistics. It gets a little complicated because there are various ways to incorporate your prior beliefs. Yes. Um, one is just to come up with a quantitative, do you believe this or not? And, and if so, what's your probability that it's real? That part everybody can understand. But then there's a second question that has to be asked, and that is, if it is real, how large is the effect? And that's where you get into some controversy. Uh, and if you do the analysis wrong, then um, you, well, I think one way of doing the analysis wrong is for somebody to say, okay, well, if it's real, then it's a large effect. We all know that's not true, or we would wouldn't be having a debate, right? If it was real and it was a large effect, we would all know that was true. If you do a Bayesian analysis where you compare the data, uh, you, you ask the data to decide between two things. It's real and it's a large effect, or it's not real. Of course, the data is going to support that it's not real. If more realistically, you ask the data, is it real and a small effect, or is it not real? It turns out that this accumulated data actually supports it's real, but it's a small effect. You've been involved, I, I know, in the years because of your research. You've been on a lot of media-related shows, correct? Correct. And, and talk to me a little bit about some of the issues there, what people like Larry King and others want to know about this whole field, and, and what you're really trying to prove, what, what the differences may be and how the media perceives it and, and how you perceive it. I can tell you what they don't want, and that is statistics. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> they want uh, gee whiz stories, anecdotes, yeah. you know, they want large effects, that sort of thing. Um, but the fun part is that uh, I think if I can just get across the message that there is something that science needs to take a look at here. There is something very important going on. Maybe it's that we really don't use statistics appropriately in general because we're using the same methods that are used in statistics in general and we're finding these effects. Uh, so maybe it's that or more realistically, I think, is that we don't understand physics and consciousness. And uh, there's a little crack in the cosmic egg, as uh, there was a title of a book a long time ago, telling us that there's something going on here that we really need to take seriously um, beyond, beyond just the statistical stuff. Richard, I know you had a question. So I want to follow up on that because I know one of the things, given your involvement in media and you see stories that journalists do that are about data, about statistics, uh, talk a little bit about common errors you see journalists make? I mean, this is part of, I think, what we're trying to do here is figure out how to help journalists uh, tell stories that get the data right or and explain it better to a general public. Right. So uh, nothing to do with the ESP research because this is not an issue there. But in general, one of the things that journalists get wrong is the whole idea of causation versus correlation. If you do what's called an observational study where you simply observe what's going on, you cannot make a cause and effect conclusion. I'll give you a good example that was in the news within the past few years. 
a study that uh, showed that coffee drinkers actually seem to have longer lifespan than non-coffee drinkers. And some of the headlines that reported that study said things like, drink coffee, you know, uh, live longer. So, so if you want to live longer, start drinking coffee. The idea being that you could alter this with a cause and effect relationship. Whereas in fact, obviously they did not randomly assign people to drink coffee or not. And so there are all kinds of what we call confounding variables that could have been part of that. That perhaps, for instance, people who are already not as healthy stopped drinking coffee. And so therefore they died younger and so on. So, so that's one, correlation versus causation. That's probably the biggest one. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about the field of parapsychology, the topic of ESP, extrasensory perception. I'm Bob Long, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell are with us as always. And our special guest today is Jessica Utz, Professor and Chair of the Department of Statistics at Cal Irvine. We wanted to find out if people know someone who seems to have that ability to predict events before they happen. People think they can if they have a situation and that's happened to them before and then they, I don't know, assume that it might happen again, but I don't think that people actually have ESP. I don't know anyone who may have that, and I honestly don't know what to think if that could exist. I don't know. I know some of my friends that are into the coffee grind thing to predict future and I it, to me it's a bunch of hocus pocus I, I don't really believe in that not really I mean I kind of feel like it's a carnival trick like, I've never I mean I feel like it's mostly coincidences and mostly people aren't actually like psychic or anything like that I don't know if people have ESP but I would say some people have greater intuition than others where they have a feeling that something's gonna happen but I wouldn't say that it's like a psychic thing. Okay, so I've got this question. Suppose you have someone out there who thinks that they do have some kind of the, the psychic ability to see things that other people or sense things before other people would. And if they're curious about that, is there any way they can find out uh, whether there's, there's something different about them compared with others? Um, that's a good question. There are actually some online websites, and people are actually developing apps now to do this. One website people might check out is uh, gotsci.org. It's G-O-T-P-S-I.org. And you can go on there, and you can actually try some tests for yourself. Have you done it? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have not, because um, you have to register and give your email address, and I don't want my colleagues to find out that I can't do this stuff. <laughs> I'm also curious, you know, we talk about when, when people think about this whole field, there's so many things out there. They think of the traditional psychics that, and then they also think about a lot of the unsolved mysteries, unsolved crimes where a family member or a detective calls in somebody who supposedly has special psychic powers. And I'm just kind of curious your, your feeling about, about all of that. I think uh, of course, that gets a lot of media attention. And, and there probably is something there. If, if psychic abilities are real, there's no reason to suspect they wouldn't work in those kinds of settings. But where I do get sort of uh, uh, discouraged, I guess is the right <laughs> word, is some of the really unscientific kinds of things that this gets connected with, right. you know, like, right. um, I don't know, UFOs and those kinds <laughs> of things. People somehow lump all this stuff together. And that's not at all what this is that about. That was kind of my my yeah. point is yeah. it seems like they throw in a lot of yeah. things that really are not at all what, what you're exactly. trying to do. Exactly. That's right. 
John Baylor? Well, I think that, you know, when you talk about the, the UFO phenomena versus this, it's, it seems like you, this issue of can you experimentally evaluate it? Right, I mean, exactly. It, you know, so that's that's one aspect that, that just fundamentally differentiates this, it right. seems, from, from the other phenomena that you just described. That's right. You know, so it's, yeah. it's testable. Yes. I mean, so the other things that aren't that aren't testable, I mean, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly right. In fact, as I said, one of the things we need in order to do statistics at all is we know what should happen by chance. And so if you can set up an experiment where you know what should happen by chance, then you can use statistics. But I don't know how you would do that with a UFO sort of <laughs> hypothesis. <laughs> so, Richard. So if a uh, – if a uh, say there is an unsolved mystery and uh, – Somebody approaches the police department and says, "I have psychic ability. I can, I can find, I can find this person." Could the police come to you and say, "Can you test and see whether this person has psychic ability?" And have you ever been asked to do that? Uh, I have not been asked to do that, and it's kind of tricky because in solving police crimes, again, you're not really setting up something where you know what should happen by chance, and so. Um, there have been cases where people have actually been accused of the crime because they seem to have information. Yes. So right. that's a very tricky business to get into. Um, there is a guy who worked for the federal government named Joe McMonagle who actually does this now for a living, and he works for companies and so on. And he has been part of a Japanese television show where he's been brought over there several times to find missing people. So they'll give him some information, and he'll actually psychically find these people, and he seems to be pretty good at it. So, um, But it's not a kind of a formal scientific test. John Baylor. Are, are there certain groups where experimentally have been demonstrated to have maybe greater psi abilities than others? And, and how was this demonstrated, if there are? Yes, indeed. So some of the experiments have been done on um, people that you would consider to be more creative than the rest of us mere mortals. Um, the, one of them was done on students at the Juilliard School of Music, and they actually did much better than the general population. The experiments that I described, you would expect people to get right about a fourth of the time. They got them right about a half of the time, and the general population of volunteers seems to get it right about a third of the time. So that was quite strong, and that was actually replicated by a study in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh on students there who were in creative kinds of majors. I'm curious, too, because of the science that, you know, somebody like you does a study like this. Uh, I think I read somewhere that, that a lot of times the naysayers immediately come out and, and try to debunk what you're saying. Does that happen more, I guess, in this field than, than maybe others? Absolutely. And that is, to me, one of the real scandals of science here, because this, as I said, needs to be investigated scientifically. And the deniers, mainly, not the skeptics, but the true deniers, um, you really do rely on ad hominem attacks, and uh, they try to ruin the reputations of people who get involved in this. There's a Nobel laureate in the UK who strongly believes this is real and has tried to do research on it and has run into all kinds of problems with his reputation being attacked, and he's a Nobel laureate. So what young scientist is going to want to risk their <laughs> reputation if that's what's happening to a Nobel laureate? So to me, that's a huge disservice to science in general to do that kind of attack. We really ought to be allowed to investigate this without that kind of a stigma placed on it. John? So you talked a little bit about uh, effect and sort of small effect, medium effect, weak effects, big effects. You know, can you formalize kind of the sense of what effect means? If So you, you, you've mm -hmm. kind of alluded to it some in your responses. You know, in particular in the experiment when you said that, you know, chance was a quarter. Mm -hmm. so what would be a small effect, a weak effect, and a large effect in that context? 
Right. So the way these experiments are set up, they are set up so that just by chance someone should get the right answer a fourth of the time. So we don't start at zero. Okay. Um, psychologists define small, medium, and large effects in the way that we could understand as follows. A small effect can only be seen statistically. So you couldn't notice it even if you noticed a lot, if you were very observant. You wouldn't really see it going on. A medium effect would be observable to the naked eye of an expert. So let's say, for example, you want to know if there's a difference in, um, in average body temperature between 18-year-olds and 90-year-olds. And well, a nurse or someone who takes temperatures all the time would probably be able to tell you that, yes, there is. That's about a medium size effect. A large effect, anybody would be able to see with the naked eye. So for example, the difference in average heights between males and females, that's a large effect. We all can see it if we see, you know, just we don't have to see that many people to recognize that that is there. So what we're talking about here is a small effect. It's uh, similar to, again, the effect of aspirin in preventing heart attacks. That's the level of it. We have time for maybe one more question. John, we'll go back to you. If there's one thing that, that you would like us to be doing a better job teaching our students, whether they're in, you know, there's students in statistics or students just in general about the, that would make them more statistically literate. What, what might that be? Um, I think the most important thing would be to think critically. And in order to do that, you need to know what that means and what kinds of questions you need to ask. So in statistics, I would love it if people would understand not the formulas, but the basic ideas of why statistics is important in daily life and uh, how you can basically improve your life by understanding the ideas of statistics, not the formulas. Oh, boy, I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jessica, we want to thank you very much for traveling here and uh, sharing your insights with us today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. And if you'd like to share your thoughts with us on our program, please send your emails to us at statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we're discussing the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.